The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 21, the party leaves Dwervar just as the sun begins to rise over a glorious panorama of cloud tops. The journey to the Shrine of Gruenmog is uneventful, although Harl cautions them to avoid a specific hazard along the way, a crack in the mountainside where something extremely dangerous has made a home. The difficult trip down the side of the mountain is over after a few hours, but when they arrive at the shrine, something seems amiss. The front door is ajar, which Harl finds mildly alarming. The party enters cautiously, and soon faces a new threat. Four fully grown fire beetles move aggressively towards them. The ensuing fight concludes with victory for the companions, but at a cost. Both Kagan and Harl have sustained minor injuries. If there's any more fighting to do, they'll need luck on their side to prevail. Chapter 22, Part 1, Day 25, Dawn. Party status, Harl, 11 of 16 hit points. Kagan, 10 of 16 hit points. Eridine, 8 out of 8 hit points. Gyrios, 14 out of 14 hit points. Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. Spells available, Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Shield. The stink of bug guts filled the air, and both Gyrios and Umura held their noses. Ahead, the single crescent blade of Harl's battle axe dripped the slime of the dead fire beetle and glowed like a lamp. Harl held it before him as he stepped over the oozing beetle corpses and moved down the hallway, slowly at first and then at a jog. His top knot bobbed as he went. Salamalani, he called. Oh, please don't be in there. Salamalani! The young dwarf reached the door and yanked it open. He entered the square room beyond and quickly scanned it. He was in the antechamber, sometimes called the ablutions room. The room was empty, save for its usual religious features at a storage crate in one corner. Harl had been here before and knew that the purpose of this room was for the single resident cleric, known as Solemn Dwarves in the culture of his race, to anoint themselves before entering the inner sanctum. 
For this purpose, it contained a pair of large, vase-shaped urns of bronze that he knew contained holy oils. Each had its own alcove and shelf, set at either side of the opposite door. Although he had never been beyond this room, Harl also knew where its two exits went. One went to the aforementioned sanctum, the other went to the Solemn's personal quarters and storage room. The latter door was closed, but the door to the sanctum was ajar. Not a good sign, muttered Harl as the party members caught up and looked around. This seems to be a purification chamber, remarked Gyrios. Every church of Mazagar has something similar. My guess is that the main chapel lies straight ahead through that door. Only dwarves may enter, Gyrios. I'm afraid you'll have to wait here, even you. Should we try this other door? asked Kagan. Try it, said Harl. I need to go on alone. Harl went to one of the vase-like urns, removed his gauntlets, and opened the top. He dipped a finger inside, and when he withdrew it, it shone faintly with a lightly colored and scented oil. He rubbed a little on the back of each hand. Kagan was at the side door. It's locked, he remarked. Wait here for me, said Harl. He walked through the door without looking back. The oil that Harl has anointed himself with is holy and magical. Any dwarf that performs this ablution ritual will get a plus one bonus to all attack, damage, and saving throw rolls and ability checks. This bonus will last for six hours. The oil may not be removed or stored elsewhere without losing its power. Bonuses are only applicable if the dwarf is anointed in a shrine of Gruenmog. You won't find this magical item in any book or list. I made it up. I've always loved it when writers included things in their adventures that were just plain magical and existed outside the rules as written. Not every enchantment needs a corresponding spell or rules-friendly explanation, right? Okay, sorry for the short rant. Back to the story. The door opened into a corridor that was identical in its symmetry and length to the one by which they had entered. As Harl made his way through it, alone, the stink of the dead Branabil was steadily replaced by a new, but equally foul smell. The smell of rotting meat. As had the entry hall, this one terminated at a door of polished steel, and like the others, it was partially open, although this door opened inward. Harl burst through it, and his heart immediately sank at the grisly scene he beheld on the other side. Solomon was a woman he had known well for many years. She was kin, even if she could not exactly have been called a close friend. The cleric, what was left of her, was sprawled face down across the altar. A dark pool of blood covered the top and ran down the sides in dried trickles. It had pooled at her knees, which were still bent in prayer. It looked as though she had been attacked and killed while at devotion. The Solemn of Gruenmog give away part of their identity when they take up the call of faith. The symbol of this sacrifice is the expressionless iron mask they wear at all times. Solomolani's head was turned to one side, and, as Harl circled the altar to get a closer look, her dead eyes caught his through the slits in that mask. The juxtaposition of the violence that had been done to the cleric's body against the permanent placidity of the metal face sent a wave of horror through the dwarf. He swallowed hard and brought the glowing orange blade of his battle axe closer to the corpse to inspect it more carefully. As Harl brought his glowing weapon closer, the full horror of the scene was revealed to him. 
hands, arms, neck, and bare feet, the flesh of the solemn, wherever it was exposed, had been minced or eaten away. It was clear that the beetles, with their razor-like mandibles, had been feeding on this corpse for some time. Lacerations crisscrossed the skin in some places. In others, the flesh had been completely eaten away. Harl realized that the odd sound that they'd heard as they'd entered must have been the sound of the beetles chewing on pieces of the cleric's body that they had torn off of it. Harl scratched his bushy black beard. Had the Solemn been attacked by the Branabil while she had been praying? It didn't really make a lot of sense. First of all, it would have been extremely unlikely, although not impossible, for the creatures to have come into the shrine on their own. Solemn Alani would not have left the door open while praying, and even if she had, the chance of these creatures having wandered by at that time, it seemed suspicious. Moreover, although it was plausible that they'd surprised her while she was defenseless and had her back to them, it was odd for her body to be found thus. Would she not have gotten to her feet and tried to escape or fight? Paul decided that he needed to take a closer look. He gently grasped the ruined shoulder of the priestess and turned her body over. One of the mechanics that didn't exist back in the early days of D&D was the perception check. While I think this mechanic is often problematic, I knew that the time would come when there would be a conflict between what I knew as the quote-unquote DM and what I knew as the quote-unquote player characters. Well, it looks like that time has finally come, though I'm surprised it took this long. There is something to notice on Solomalani's corpse, but it's not a given that Hara will notice it. I could attach this check to Harl's luck score, but to be honest, I can see that ability being dumped in the future, so I don't want to double down on it. Besides, I think the wisdom score makes more sense, and it's generally underused in basic D&D, so from here on in, I'll make passive and active perception rolls based on a character's wisdom ability score. Harl has a wisdom of 13, so I'll need to make a roll of 13 or under on a d20 for him to notice anything unusual about the cleric's body. I've rolled a three. Harl brought the light from his axe closer to Solomalani's body and gasped. What's this? Although the body was scored with straight cuts, obviously the result of the Branabil having fed on it, there was one cut that looked slightly different. Consistent with all the others, this cut was straight and deep roughly six inches long. It was the placement that Harl noticed. This cut ran horizontally straight across the priestess's neck. Harl wondered what the chances were for the beetles to have sliced her in the exact location an assassin might have chosen to place a blade. This was a puzzle beyond his ability to understand at the moment. All Harl really knew was that they had to get back to Dwervar and tell Lord Kleneth what had happened here. She was wise. She would know what it meant. Behind Harl was, apart from the altar, the only feature of the room, a huge disc of carved marble, white with veins the color of wine, attached to the wall opposite the only door. It showed an enormous graven skull, ringed by a pattern of small alternating mushrooms and worms. It is known that in dwarven shrines and temples, depictions of reality are forbidden. In these places, only abstract or geometric figures may be used. However, there is one exception. 
Every dwarven stronghold will have two massive marble discs such as this. One of them will always be in the shrine of Grunmog. The other, its twin, will always be found in the throne room. The larger-than-life marble skull framed the scene of the dwarf standing over the fallen priestess. Were anyone else there to see it when Harl rose up and walked back through the door? They might have thought the skull seemed to grin at his back. Hail and well met, Traveler. My name is Kylan, and I'm the host of the Threat Dice Podcast. Come join us every Friday as we talk everything about tabletop RPGs. We've covered topics like alignment, how to run a session zero, magic, charisma, world building, homebrewing, and RPG system topics like Pathfinder, Numenera, Zweihander, and more. We have advice and discussions for GMs looking for new ways to approach old topics and for players who want to broaden their horizons. Come find Threat Dice on Twitter, at TumbleDie, and every Friday on your favorite podcasting app. Part 2 Barak Ironskin was easily the most imposing figure in Dwervar. He was the patriarch of the Ironskin family. He had a face like a battlefield and a personality like a handful of nails. Old Barak was also one of the oldest dwarves of the High Forge. In fact, the only dwarf senior to him was Cleneth Stonecarver herself. If Gruenmog had angled his hammer of fate only slightly differently, he, not she, would be the lord of the Citadel, and his family, not hers, would rule Dwarvar. When Anatar, the youngest adult of his ken, visited him, it was early morning and Barak was just finishing a breakfast of blue tip fungus and Lowlands beer. As always, he was dressed in his plate and mail armor, and his hammer hung at his belt. Like many dwarves of his generation and disposition, he never took off his armor. Some dwarves of other families joked that the elder dwarves even slept in their armor. This was all the funnier because it was true. The only time Barak doffed his plate mail was to have it oiled or to have himself cleaned. Many of the older generation had lived their lives as warriors and could not shed their habits, even in times of peace. The young Anatar bowed deeply at the waist and stayed in that position of genuflection for some time while Barok finished his mug. Rise up, kin. You were right to come so swiftly. Always. You were a good boy. Send me after them with a few good dwarves and a quiver of bolts. We'll cut them down for you, and never shall they set foot in the Durvar again. Anatar was full of youthful anticipation and desire to please. From what you say, they've already been into our home. They've spent time here. Anatar wanted to answer, but he did not know how to. I only saw the fish eaters leaving with the dwarf and their company towards Gruenmog's shrine. I do not know how long they were here. Uh, one of the pigeon lords brewed sure stones. Shall we suffer the humans to walk in our very halls, Anatar? Something must be done about it and the human-loving Pillow Dwarves as well. Barok scratched at a scar on his left cheek. It was one of many, but this scar in particular must have once been a grievous wound. It began at his jawbone and ran vertically up to part his eyebrow right in the middle. 
The eye itself had been cut by the strike, but not lost. Now it was milky white and useless. It seemed to look not into this world, but some other realm of spirits and secrets. Unlike Lord Cleneth, Barak had a fiery temper and was given to fits of rage. He did not consider this a personal flaw or weakness, quite the opposite. He could presently feel the frustration begin to curdle in his belly, and he welcomed the sensation. Already his plan was being upset by those man-loving stone carvers. They could not possibly know of his plans. This excursion to Gruenmach's shrine must be a miracle of dumb luck. Only three weeks ago, he had sent his youngest son, Halmir, to the shrine with the supply crate. The plan was already underway, and it was a good plan. Halmir had slit Solomalani's throat and then opened the box, which contained four young Branabil. They would have spent many days feasting on the cleric's body, destroying the evidence of the murder and replacing it with new evidence. It would seem to whoever discovered the tragedy weeks later, when the next supply crate was delivered, that the cleric had been killed by the Branabil. The families took turns delivering the supply crate so he could be sure that none of his kin would be there when the body was found. By the time it was found, the insects would have matured. They would either be present as a plausible cause of death, or they would have wandered off on their own accord in search of new food, and only the devoured body would remain. Either way, he won. Then he could concentrate on removing another of Kleneth's allies and come one step closer to his true goal. My lord, Anatar interrupted his thoughts. Shall I call my brothers together and form a party to hunt down these intruders? No, replied Barok after a moment of consideration. I would not let you down. Anatar could not hide his disappointment. He studied the floor. Only you will go. Alone. Alone? My lord, there are five of them, and... Barak waved a hand in the air, cutting off the younger dwarf mid-sentence. You will go alone. When you reach the lair of the Dolai Anir, find a place in the rocks from where you can shoot and disappear. Then, you will wait. When the time comes, you will take only the single shot and then leave. You will not be seen, and you will tell no one. Anatar's feelings were a jumble. This was not what he wanted. Not glorious, nor honorable. He could not enjoy any bragging rights. Still, if old Barak was placing his trust in him, it must mean something. I will not fail you, my lord. See that you don't. Chapter 22, Part 3, Day 25, Early Afternoon, Party Status, Harl, 11 of 16 hit points, Kagan, 10 of 16 hit points, Eridine, 8 of 8 hit points, Gyrios, 14 of 14 hit points, Umura, 10 of 10 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Hold Portal and Shield. When Harl came through the door, his teeth were clenched, his lip was curled, and his bushy eyebrows were shaped like a V. Without looking at anybody, he walked straight to the opposite door, 
the one that led to the exit. What happened in... Kagan began to say. Touch nothing. We're leaving, replied the dwarf without looking back. The party had not been idle during the minutes Harl was in the sanctum. Eredin showed her thieves' tools to her companions and offered to try the locked door. However, Gyrios had dissuaded her, saying that it would be inappropriate in a holy place. Umora had returned to the hallway where they'd fought the fire beetles and, using her silver dagger, had harvested two of the dead bugs' glowing glands, six in total. Kagan, for his part, despite having been told that he could not accompany Harl, had stood faithfully at the ready, waiting in case the dwarf should call for help. The companions watched Harl march past them and into the entrance hall. They heard a noise that must have been the sound of the dwarf kicking the fire beetle corpses, and some words in his language that, despite her study, Umura did not recognize. She guessed correctly that they were the kind of words one does not learn in lessons and books. Kagan looked at her with his eyebrows raised and shrugged. He glanced once over his shoulder at the doorway to the inner sanctum, and then followed Harl. Well, I guess we're leaving, he called back. Come on. What does the party see when they exit the shrine? I don't normally roll for weather at random, but why not? I like the simple system of rolling a d20 and describing the weather based on the result. The higher the number, the nicer the day. I rolled an 11, so the weather hasn't changed much. It's a sunny day and warm, maybe a few clouds overhead. Certainly the weather will not hinder them as they make their way back up the mountain. The party reforms their marching order of Harl and Kagan in front, followed by Gyrios and Umura and Eredin in the rear. When the path is too narrow to walk to abreast, Harl will take the lead, and Gyrios will walk ahead of Umura. Kagan reached down and offered a hand to Umura. She grabbed his forearm, and he lifted her up over the rocky ledge. If coming down the trail had been difficult, Going back up was truly exhausting. After just 20 minutes, they had to stop and take a breather. The crate in the first room. Was that a supply crate? Umura was still catching her breath. She held her arms akimbo. Yes, food mostly, but also oil, other sundry supplies, Harl replied. As on the descent, he showed no signs of exhaustion at all. There's a spring that runs nearby, so the solemn assigned to the shrine can always get enough water for drinking and cleaning. The crate was empty. How often do they get delivered? Empty? Are you sure? They get delivered every six weeks or so, replied Harl. It was empty, confirmed Umura. Nothing in it at all. The young dwarf frowned and sighed heavily. Then I suspect the crate never contained food to begin with. The others looked at him quizzically, and he explained, finally telling the others what he'd found in the inner sanctum. Mazagar, have mercy. I'm so sorry for your loss, said Gyrios. She was your family then? A cousin. We knew each other. Not especially well, but yes, she was family. But why would anyone do that? asked Kagan. That's what frightens me, said Harl. Lord Kleneth had her detractors, to be sure, but this... It has never come to violence before. I knew Dwevar was divided. I didn't realize how bad the schism was. What exactly is going on? asked Umora. I'll try to explain. 
As you know, Dwarvar did not always enjoy good relations with the men of the Camertine Outlands. Burke, being a town on the borderlands, was, until recently, little more than a fort. Hmm, my father told me a little of this history, said Kagan. Go on. It wasn't much of a fort, either, to be honest. Didn't need to be. The relations between dwarves and men were prickly, but rarely came to blows. Go back a few more years, maybe fifty or sixty, and the history gets bloodier. But trust me that Dwarvar never had much interest in the Flatlands. That makes sense, said Umura, nodding. But I still don't understand how your people have come to be divided. When Lord Glenneth took the throne, Harl did a quick mental calculation. Thirty-eight years ago, the troubles with the Camortine had all but dried up on their own. Lord Glenneth slowly began to forge a peace with the town of Burke. Back then it was known as Fort Burke. I think I understand, said Kagan. The people who were involved in the earlier conflicts didn't want that. Just so, Harl said. Some had matched steel with those men, and a few had lost family members to their raids, infrequent as they had been. The truth is, most of the humans involved in those fights were white-haired and toothless by the time Kalendis took the throne, but dwarves have long lives. And long memories. Harl took a sip of water from the skin and passed it around. Once everyone had had their fill, he stoppered it and replaced it in his bag, saying, History lesson over. Ready to continue? My legs feel like jelly, replied Umura, frowning. I'll take that as a yes, replied the dwarf. With that, he retook the lead and continued the ascent back to Dwarvar. Up ahead, concealed from the approaching party, one dwarf crouched, hidden among the rocks. Anatar Ironskin heard their approach before he saw them. He steadied himself and checked his crossbow for the twentieth time. His heart began to hammer in his chest. The shot was an easy one. A child could not miss it. But if he should miss... No, don't think about that. He fit a quarrel into his weapon and waited. They were close now. One hundred feet away. He raised his weapon. Eighty feet. He aimed. Sixty feet. Dolai Anir. By the stones, this felt dangerous. One shot was all it would take. Forty feet. He pulled the trigger. The bolt flew towards its target and struck true. Of course, no one in the party was hit. Not even close. Anatar had not been aiming at them. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or some other podcatcher of your choice. Today I'd like to read a review left on Podcast Addict. Moonbirdie writes, An amazing tale woven with engaging voice acting, suspense, drama, and wonder. I eagerly await the next episode. Moonbirdie, thank you so much for your review. To both Austin Moraga playing Barak Ironskin and Aaron Velimuri playing Anatar Ironskin, thank you very, very much. You can catch Austin's work at the Ironbound Chest podcast. As for Aaron, he publishes a blog at ankleshotwoes.blogspot.com. Check it out. Feel free to get in touch with me anytime, either through Gmail at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com 
or on Twitter or Instagram. On Twitter, my handle is at Manticore Tale. And on Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. I hope to see you there. The story will continue in the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. My name is Estra. Allow me to buy you a drink as you spin your tale of adventure. Have you ever wondered how heroes begin? Who were they before they started their journey? How did they get to where they are today? Did they decide to answer the call, or did life answer the call for them? Hear their stories and more in Tales of an Adventure, an in-character character interview show celebrating the characters people bring to life in TTRPGs. The show follows Isra as she wanders the world, striking up conversations with various people she meets along the way. Whether you're looking for more shows to listen to, or you're just looking for something a little different, Tales of Adventure is the show for you. Tales of Adventure is hosted and produced by me, Brianna Toiber, as part of Pseudonym Social, a creative podcast network. You can find us on Twitter at, at Pseudonym Social, and you can also find us online at patreon.com slash pseudonym social and www.pseudonymsocial.wordpress.com. If you are interested in having your character on a show, feel free to let us know.